If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Micah. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find the book of Micah and the Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. That black Bible will have Micah on page 728. And today as we read through Micah and we study through Micah, we have reached the halfway point in our work through the Minor Prophets. It is a wonderful book to finish the first half on. It has the same subject matter that the vast majority of the Minor Prophets that we've been dealing with has had, the destruction of Judah and Israel, but the ultimate hope they have in the promises of God. As a matter of fact, if you were to keep four things in mind, you'd have a good rubric to understand almost all of the Prophets. Prophets have come to declare that Israel and Judah have been idolatrous before God, that because of that they have committed injustice before men, and this has led God to remove them from the land. They have broken his covenant. They have broken their deal with God. As God has called them to be his people, they were to follow him as God, and as they have broken that, God can no longer hold up his end of the bargain, and he will remove them. Yet at the same time, God will not forget the promises that he has made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and therefore there will be salvation. There will be a fulfillment of all that God has foretold. Micah is, in that sense, covering those things, one of the more beautiful prophets, filled with hope and salvation. Martin Luther once said, I came across this this quote this week in reference to Micah. Uh, I don't think Luther said it about Micah in particular, but this author was quoting it in in lieu of Micah, uh, saying that, as Luther said, the prophets have a, a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. If you've ever read through the prophets, you, you would say, that's probably true. Like, it's, it's difficult at times to track with what the prophets are saying, and Micah is particularly that way. He seems to be kind of all over the place. He was known to be a prophet, and he was a known prophet, as is mentioned in other places in Scripture, likely prophesying even before the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722, a decade, maybe two before then. He was a contemporary, therefore, with Isaiah. He is mentioned in Jeremiah 26, as Jeremiah is about to be stoned by false prophets and priests. He is about to be killed because he is speaking treasonous words of destruction against Judah. He is stayed in that execution by elders who point out that Micah said almost the exact same things before Jeremiah ever showed up. So Micah was well known. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. He probably prophesied quite a bit, and we know that he had a a place even before the, uh, the office of Hezekiah, that he would often speak to the king. So one of the reasons why Micah might seem like he's all over the board is that this is not just one work that Micah put together. He did not just write this all as one book, nor is this a faithful summary of one long sermon or one long prophecy that Micah might have given. It is likely a number of different things that Micah said patched together and work together by the work of the Holy Spirit and by the work of an editor to kind of include and summarize what Micah had preached on. Therefore, it would do us very little good to simply, prop, to simply run through, to summarize Micah by marching through the chapters, beginning at chapter 1 and going through. 
Rather, we're going to try and capture, as we've done for other prophets, the themes of this work, and we will do that in five points. First, we will talk, as we often do with these prophets, about the destruction of the nation. The destruction of the nation. If you would, read with me the opening words of Micah in chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys split open like wax before the fire." Like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Micah quite clearly prophesies that there is destruction coming. He begins his entire book on that particular note. If You are, like I'm sure most of you, although not all of you, a watcher of sports, and specifically American sports. You might have noticed something distinct in the way that they are presenting sports, football and baseball, particularly this year. They've got a a new way of holding the camera or of, of framing the picture, which brings a lot of attention to the person who is doing the acting, if they just scored a touchdown and their celebration or something like that, and it, it really blurs the background. This is something that photographers have done for a long time. It's a technique called bokeh, I believe. I've never actually heard that term said out loud, but I believe it's called bokeh. It's a Japanese word for blur or haze. And what it does is it brings whatever they want to focus in the foreground into very, very sharp focus and leaves the rest of it incredibly blurred in order to draw attention to what is there before it, so that the focal point truly stands out and does so without losing what is in the background, so that if you want to take a picture of a bird, it's clear that there is green behind, but you don't know what kind of green. You don't lose the context, but it does single out what you want to focus on. And although Micah begins with this comment on destruction, I think that Micah is doing something like that in his description of the destruction and the judgment of God's people. It's not that it's not there. It is there. But it's certainly not as prominent as it is in other prophets. It's neither as dramatic nor as descriptive as it is in other prophets. It's there. He starts with it. But you find as you read throughout the book of Micah that it's not like the other prophets. It's not nearly as highlighted, not nearly as focused on as the other prophets focus on it. There are other passages as we go through the book that that Micah clearly links to and speaks of this destruction. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, we read this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice 
and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Even here, doom and destruction loom. It's quite clear that it's building up to that. But even before he gets there, he's putting much more emphasis on what has caused the destruction than the destruction itself. The same is true further on in chapter 6, in verses 13 through 16. There God says that he will strike, strike the wicked with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all of the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. You shall bear the scorn of my people. This is not the typical prophetic, sort of apocalyptic, the moon and the stars are falling, the sun is turning blood red, language that we find through many of the prophets. It seems like it is a straightforward depiction of wrath that is coming to the people. And the point of all of this is simply this. The destruction is real, and the destruction is coming, and it will come upon God's people. But that is not what Micah truly wants to focus on. He doesn't want you to lose that context. He wants you to know that it's in the background. He wants you to know that that blur you see behind you is always present and always there. But rather, he wants to focus on two other things instead. First, why it's coming. And second, how we can preserve through it. We'll take those as two distinct points as we're coming up. So the next two points will be about why that judgment and why that destruction is coming. And the last two points will be about how it will be preserved. Second point, then, is this the injustice of the people. The injustice of the people. Go back to chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 5 with me. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allows our fields. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot, in the assembly of the Lord. Here, this particular section seems to be devoted to the wickedness of Ahab, who we've already read that they kept the works of Ahab. Ahab, who famously whined and cried because he couldn't buy the field of Naboth, so he leaned on his wife to go and murder Naboth and steal the field from him so that he could have it. The point of this passage is simply this. The people are acting wickedly because they feel like they can. They can. 
They're acting wickedly because they are allowed to get away with it. Notice the language there in verse 1. When the morning dawns, they perform this wickedness. Why? Because it is in the power of their hand. They have a desire for evil, and there is no one there to put the brake on it. This again is reiterated in chapter 3. And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. They are wicked. They hate what is good, but they love what is evil. And you might think because Micah is, is very restrained in the way he talks about the destruction that is coming to them. There, there is no wine press of the wrath of God, flood, blood flowing for miles and flooding everything around. There's no language like that. You might think that Micah is squeamish, but then when you read this, you realize that this is where he is drawing your attention. Not simply to the destruction is, that is coming, but the kind of injustice that is found among the people of God. point is, others are simply there to be used, to be abused. Idolatry always entails violence. A loss of God means that there is a loss of his image and image bearers. And without that image, we are nothing but animals and we are devoid of dignity. And thus, we are nothing but to be used like animals. They're the same animals who are cut up and thrown into pot for a stew. They're not people to be loved. They're animals to use for other ends. Anytime people turn away from God, there inevitably will be violence. And if nothing else, this is why we must hold on to the very image of God and people because we seek to be the kind of people who perform justice. We seek to be the kind of people who uphold the image of God in all people. Sinners, thieves, and murderers may try their hardest to pervert the image of God that is in them, yet we must uphold it. We must see it in them. We must make sure that we keep the image of God as part of our nature, not simply something to be found in the things that we do. People have dignity because of what they are, not because of what they do. When we start to define dignity, when we start to define the image of God and the glory that weighs upon every human being, Based upon what they do, violence will always follow because they will never match your standards for what they ought to be. They will be nothing more than sheep for the slaughter. And here, Micah focuses on that. This is what happens to people when they forget God. When they forget God, they forget what God is. They don't see the goodness and the value in other people because they're nothing but a collection of atoms. They're nothing but, but animals to be beaten and used for your own purpose. But even though that is there, there's something that Micah wants to focus on even more. At the end of each of these sections, from 2, 1 to 5 and 3, 1 to 4, Micah moves directly into the condemnation of the leaders of Israel. Especially glaring is 3, 4, where he says this, those who have been oppressed, those who have been flayed open, bones have been broken, skin has been ripped off of them, they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. I don't know that anything like that is ever written anywhere else in Scripture. 
that people who have this grave injustice cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, I will not hear it. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. These people are eaten alive by the bloodthirst of the people around them. They are eaten alive by their oppressors, and God simply will not hear. Why is that? It's because of our third point, the failure of instruction. The failure of instruction. Instruction has failed here on two ends, the teacher's end and the student's end, the priests and the people, the leaders and the followers, the shepherds and the sheep. Both are guilty. Listen to what we go to in chapter 2. After speaking of the injustice, in verse 6 we read this. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those passing by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Again, it's impossible not to see destruction in the background here, but what Micah is focusing on is that these people refuse to teach the word of the Lord. They refuse to actually take to the people the very things that they need to hear. Precisely because the people will not hear such things. This is reiterated again in chapter 3. as We read through verses 5 and 8. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace, when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Those who were there to handle injustice, those who were to speak of such things, refused to do so. Their entire speech, everything that came from them was self-serving. So long as you gave them what they wanted, they will give you what you want. You want to know that there will be peace? Give me a morsel of bread and I will declare over you peace. But if you want war, don't give me what I want, and I will declare that there will be nothing good for you. These people were there to handle injustice. It's not that the people of Israel are more violent than all others, or not more bloodthirsty, or more unjust. They are just like everyone else. Only given the situation, there is much more ample opportunity to carry out their desires because the leaders who were put in place 
to protect justice, to carry out justice, were not doing what they were meant to do. The problem here, and let's be very clear about this, is not just that there was sin. Sin is always and everywhere present. Sin abides in every culture and every nation. We would rightly say that without sin, there would be no injustice. The problem here is that the priests and the prophets stopped saying the word of the Lord and they stopped declaring the law of God. The law was given to buffer, to mediate, to limit the effects of sin, and it was simply not being used that way. So there was lawlessness and unholiness running rampant all over everything. Everyone was allowed to act however they wanted to because no one was going to hold them accountable because everyone was in on it. God was always preparing to bring a Savior to fulfill the law. It's an interesting way in which that is placed. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when you read that in Matthew 5, you ought to ask, why fulfill the law? Some people talk as though the law has been pushed aside. Some people talk as though the law has been set aside. That is not the case. The law isn't just moved to the side and we are now ignoring it. What Jesus has said is, I have brought it to fulfillment. I have completed the law. He did so because the law was always meant to come to an end. There's no law where there is no injustice. Jesus came to put an end to sin. He came to put an end to the reign of sin in us, and therefore, there is no law needed. The law was meant to mediate, to buffer sin until Jesus was to come. The law was always a response to sin. It was never to be the solution. But nevertheless, the leaders wouldn't speak. They wouldn't tell people what was right and what was true. Micah says, as for me, I am filled with power. I will declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The people wouldn't listen. The leaders were inept. They wouldn't declare these things because they knew the people wouldn't listen to them anyway. That is exactly the reason why Micah does declare it. Micah and all of the prophets seem bent on being the very people who declare to others who will not listen the word of the Lord. Isaiah did the same thing. Jeremiah did the same thing. Every one of the minor prophets, with the exception of Jonah, was told that their preaching would not have their desired effect. It wouldn't bring people to repentance. It wouldn't bring people to God. Isaiah was told that quite explicitly. Jeremiah experienced that quite explicitly. And yet, nevertheless, because they are faithful to God and to what he has declared, he will do it anyway. He knows that it will not have the effect. He knows that people will reject it, but he will declare it to them anyway. Because they refuse the word of God, there will be no word. There will be no vision. There will be no speech. Friends, we, we must be able to hear the critique of Scripture on our lives. I will probably not be the first to admit, but I will admit that I am not always good at taking criticism. I, I, am, I am automatically defensive. That's my, my initial thrust. And I'm, at the best of times, I will, will re-look at the critique later 
and hopefully, by God's assistance, take what is good and right and true from that and make changes. But I, I quite often just find myself to be defensive immediately. We always think that what we do is right because it's what we did. If I had to guess, though, I would have to think that I'm not alone in that. Most of us struggle being critiqued. Most of us struggle hearing that we're wrong. Most of us struggle hearing that we're sinful. There are certain areas that we will receive that rightly because it's hard to deny it. But there are other areas where you might think that you're strong to be critiqued on your weakness in that area, to be told that where you think you've got things figured out, you actually have no idea what's going on. To be told that is hard. It's difficult to listen to it. But if Scripture... If the prophetic word itself is unable to critique us, is unable to give us other ways of thinking and acting, if Scripture itself is unable to straighten our crooked ways, then what could we possibly think will do it for us? If we reject God's word, where can we find true instruction? Is it not darkness? Are we not in night without vision? It's precisely what Micah says. Think that you might get this through leaders and teachers. Friends, leaders and teachers are dispensable. You can always collect for yourself those who tell you what you already think is true. I am dispensable. I'm not just dispensable in the plan of God. I'm dispensable by this church. It's like right there in the bylaws. You can get rid of me whenever you want to. Well, not whenever. There's a procedure. But following that procedure, you can get rid of me. It's possible. I'm not here forever. The question is, are we going to listen? Am I going to listen to your critique? Are you going to listen to my critique? Are we going to listen to the critique that comes from Scripture? Or is it going to fall on deaf ears? Are are we going to actually try to be consumed with doing the Word of God? Or do we just want to hear the things we want to hear because it makes us feel good? Failure of instruction is real, and it is wicked. It is wicked for teachers not to teach what is right. It is wicked for people to only want to hear what they want to hear. The Word of God comes to instruct us and to lead us to better ends. This is what Micah pinpoints as the downfall of Judah and the downfall of Israel. But we have the response then, and that is the lament of Micah. That is the lament of Micah. Given that Micah in chapter 3 has said this, I am filled with the power of the Lord, I will tell of your sins. We we might expect that that kind of sentiment would come along with a sentiment that is is one of, well, you'll see, you're going to get yours in the end. If you don't want to listen to me, we'll just see what happens to you. As though he's some sort of petulant man whose warnings are not taken and cannot wait to say, I told you so. Micah does nothing of the sort. Both at the beginning of his book and at the end of his book, he laments over the nature of God's own people. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this. For this, this destruction that is coming, the destruction that we read about at the very beginning, the mountains melting under the Lord, the transgression of Jacob, the transgression of Israel, 
Micah says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Jackals' howls are mournful, high-pitched sounds. It is a sound of pain and misery. It's worth noting that Micah, as much as any prophet, knows that he is on the winning side. But he is not gloating over that. He's not grateful that he is on the winning side. He is not going to yell gotcha at those who turn from God. Rather, he is filled with sorrow and laments what this means for his people. This is repeated at the very end of his book in chapter 7. In verse 1, we read of this lament that he begins to take up. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah, in this chapter, says he's looking for the fruit. He's like a man at the end of summer who's going out and looking at the vineyards. He's looking at the fig trees, and he wants ripe fruit. He wants to see good fruit. And he looks out, and he says, I can't find any good fruit among the people of God. All I find is wickedness and destruction. There's rampant injustice. There's ambushing. There's hunting. Leaders are enabling such behavior and encouraging it. At best, they are like thorns and briars, uncomfortable at best, destructive at worst. No relationships are good or true, no matter how intimate they should be. Micah longs and searches for fruit, but he can find none. It is difficult for us to imagine what that must be like. We get fruit all year long. What would life be like without fruit? Thanksgiving is coming. And while some of you disgraceful people eat nothing but vegetable pies, which is what pumpkin pie is, it's just a vegetable pie. I know that pumpkin is technically a fruit, but it's a vegetable, right? You don't eat it at any other time. You just eat it in pie, and you can't eat it without four ounces of whipped cream on every square inch. Why do you do that when God has given you the perfect fruit for pie and apples? So eat apple pie and rejoice, but imagine what it would be like to have all of the fruit gone. Imagine what it would be like to have it removed from you. There is no sweetness, no goodness. This is what Jonas or what Micah sees, and it leads him to lament. It doesn't lead him to gloat. It doesn't lead him to anger. It doesn't lead him to lash out at the people. He looks at their evil, not just at, at the sorrow and the, the, the trampling on the poor, and he laments for the poor. He, it's not just that. He literally laments at their evil. He looks at their evil, and it makes him sad. 
This is the kind of heart that we ought to have for our enemies. Not like Jonah. Jonah lamented for his precious little plant, but he was praying for the burning of an entire city. But Micah and many of the other prophets who suffered at the hands of such evil, whose preaching and life calling was never to make nary a dent in the hearts of these people that they proclaimed the goodness of God to. Nevertheless, although they were clearly his enemies, although they clearly wanted nothing to do with him, and they oftentimes threatened the lives of these prophets, nevertheless, he was sorrowful and lamented over the evil that he found. We need to strive for this very end ourselves. Are you grieved over the evil that you find around you? Does it lead you to anger and bitterness? There's nothing wrong with righteous anger. I'm guessing, though, that we use that adjective righteous to simply cover over just a lot of anger. And there's probably very little of it that's actually righteous. It ought to lead us to be sorrowful, to lament over the nature of people, the evil that they are bringing upon themselves and the destruction that is coming upon them. Not just for those we love, but even for those who hate us and seek our ill. Fifth, we can lament over it, but we can do so in hope because of the salvation of the Lord. Unlike at the beginning, where Micah laments about this destruction that is coming, he laments and then it leads directly into the destruction, making its way from the north all the way into Jerusalem. Unlike that, in verse 7 of chapter 7, we read this, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Unlike the first three chapters, which are filled with judgment, there's a turn in chapter 4, and it's not that 4, 5, 6, and 7 do not have their fair share of judgment and destruction in it, but Micah turns his attention directly in these chapters to the salvation of the people of God. In chapter 4, we begin by reading this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat the swords, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The nations will one day eventually see the good of the Lord. The high places were where the people of Israel and the people of Judah would put their idolatrous shrines. 
And God is saying, I will one day make Jerusalem the highest of all the mountains. They will know that there is no higher place than this where the Lord is to be worshipped. And all of the nations will flood to it. All of the nations will come to it. The result will be peace and great prosperity. Every man will have a vine and a fig tree to sit under. That is a sign of, of ownership. It is a sign of goodness. It is a sign of rest. It is a sign of prosperity. It is a sign of peace. And even so, Micah recognizes that now is not that time. Now, that is not the case. He uses this word now in 4.9 and in 10 and in 5.1. 4.9, now, why do you cry out loud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished like a pain, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. The whole point is that while salvation might come, you are never to be confused about now. Now is a time of grief, and now can be a time of suffering. And in 5.1, we get a picture of what this looks like. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Do this now. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I take that last as nothing but a reference to the trial of Jesus Christ where he himself, the judge of all of Israel, was stricken on the cheek. He was slapped. Now is not the full picture of salvation. Now is not the full realization of salvation. There is sorrow and there is trial and there is tribulation before it comes. Even if it is coming, there are difficult times. But friends, let us be reminded that what is happening now is not always a good depiction of what is going to come. We do this. We're, we're, we try to be rational creatures. Right? We, we say, well, this happened yesterday and it happened again today. The likelihood is it's going to happen tomorrow. We try to, we try to make the links and connect them all together. This is the same kind of thinking that makes people say, as we lose a sense of biblical morality and we lose a sense of biblical ethics in this world, they see it wearing away. They see it falling away. They look at us and they say, well, you guys are going to be on the wrong side of history because we can see where history is going. We know where history ends. The now is a forever now. The now will never come to an end. But the momentum of the now, as we read here in 9 and 10, in verse 11 of chapter 4 and 5 verse 1, has forever and irreparably been altered by the work of the cross. Listen to what happens in 2 through 6 of chapter 5. But you, notice, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise against him with seven shepherds and eight princes of men. 
They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. God will take that which is small, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too small to be among the clans of Judah, and from him he will overturn exactly everything in the way we expect it. Then now will be no more because God will bring his salvation. The great promise here is obviously made of Jesus Christ, we would say of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem. I don't like Christmas in November, and so we're not going to go any further down that road. You'll notice here in Micah how much stands on his shoulders. He is our strength. The majesty of God is in him. He will be great, and we shall dwell secure in him. He is our peace. He is our hope. He is the one who will bring all of our enemies to tow. How are the people of God to know that this will be true? How can they trust in this vision? They can trust in it because in chapter 6, the Lord arises and the Lord reminds them of his greatness. Hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shemtim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Even while God brings a lawsuit against his people, he does them not to show them their unrighteousness, but to remind them of how faithful and good he is. He will be faithful to his word. He will always do what is right, and he will bring salvation to them. The salvation will come from Jesus Christ, who was foretold to be the one who will give us peace and give us comfort and give us prosperity. What does this returning to God look like? It looks like this as we continue in chapter 6. What shall I come before, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer is clearly no. None of these shall atone for you. We know that as Micah asks this question, it is answered for us in Jesus Christ who will indeed be the transgression or will indeed die for our transgression as the firstborn, who will indeed be the very thing that makes us one with God. Micah said, says this, this is what we are to do. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? The idea is very plain. We do not sacrifice our way back to God, but we seek out loving kindness. We cannot offer enough to God to bring us back. 
but we simply do justice. We do these things at personal cost. We do these things even though it might hurt us, it might have pain for us, it might, might financially distract from the things that we otherwise might want to do. We do this because we are those who have flocked to Jerusalem to be instructed by God. We are those who know the peace of Jesus Christ. We are those who have received the promise of his prosperity, not here in this world, but with an inheritance that is laid up for us, always precious and imperishable in heaven. Therefore, because he has justified us, what is left for us is nothing more than trusting him, doing justice where we can, seeking peace and prosperity for all, being kind and loving to walk humbly before our Lord. This is the salvation that God gives to us. A salvation that doesn't just forgive our sins, but a salvation that makes us not the wicked people we were. A salvation that makes us into the people who love the word of God. A salvation that makes us into the kind of people who want to walk humbly and to do justice before God. As we finish, let us be reminded again of Micah's great hope in chapter 7, verse 7. My God will hear me. We are all in the now. We might have received salvation from the Lord. We might have comfort and peace in that. But friends, we know that the now is sometimes filled with suffering and grief. I would tell you to wait upon the Lord. His salvation is sure and true. It is more sure than it was for Micah. Micah would plead for you to trust in the Lord, and we have more reason to trust than Micah ever knew of. We have Jesus Christ raised from the grave. We have Jesus Christ dying for our sins, Jesus Christ justifying, Jesus Christ giving us the Holy Spirit. Wait upon the Lord, and he will show his salvation finally and fully to you. For those of you who are especially struggling right now, struggling to see any good, who cannot see the light for the darkness, listen well to these final words of Micah. We begin reading in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands in their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, 
They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And lo, it has come to pass in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, only the feeblest reading of Micah would lead any of us to think that we are better and above the sins of the people of Judah and Israel that we have read of. Indeed, we too must look to a Savior. Those whom you have called have trusted in your promises, and so shall we. But we have the promise made more sure in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. He is our peace. He is our comfort. He is our great inheritance. He is sure and steady through all of the evils in this world. There is none like you, Lord. Let us look to you, for you have had compassion on us and have trampled our iniquities under the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us our song of response, O church, arise.